Hi folks, and welcome to White Collar Week, a podcast serving the white collar justice community. It's the isolation that destroys us. The solution is in community. Today on the podcast, we have Tom Harden, best known in the financial and legal worlds as Tipper X. Tom previously spent most of his career as a hedge fund stock analyst. In 2008, as part of a cooperation agreement with the Department of Justice, Tom assisted the U.S. government in understanding how insider trading occurred in the investment management industry. Tom became one of the most prolific informants in securities fraud history, helping to build over 20 of the 80-plus individual criminal cases in Operation Perfect Hedge, a Wall Street House cleaning campaign that morphed into the largest insider trading investigation of a generation. Tom's a fascinating guy. He goes into his personal history and family much deeper than he does in his corporate presentations. He's a member of our White Collar Support Group that meets online on Monday evenings, so we know his story well. In this podcast, I think you will learn a lot about Tom and maybe something about yourself as well. So coming up, Tom Harden, Tipper X, White Collar Week. Please stay with us and let's get started. Hello, and welcome to White Collar Week, a podcast sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries, the world's first ministry serving the white collar justice community. I'm Jeff Grant, co-founder and your host. I served almost 14 months in a federal prison for a white collar crime I committed when I was a lawyer. So I know that it's the isolation that kills us and the solution is in community. So let's get started. Hello, hi folks, and welcome to White Collar Week. Um, Tonight we have with us uh, a friend of mine, Tom Harden, who's known in the financial and legal world as Tipper X. He's going to tell you all about that. Tom's a member of our white collar support group that meets on Monday nights. We've come to know each other very well on that support group, and also we've collaborated on a few projects. Um, so I'm going to give Tom about 10 minutes or so to tell the story. Then we'll get into conversation about uh, all things insider trading and uh probably uh, how this affects our families and things like that. So, Tom, take it away. Great. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be here on the new uh, podcast. Um, Tom Harden, about 10 years ago now, was also known as Tipper X. Um, there was a large Department of Justice investigation into the crime of insider trading in primarily the hedge fund industry. Mm-hmm. Um, over 80 individuals were criminally charged with securities fraud, hedge fund manager, managers, analysts, traders. Um, corporate attorney insiders, those types of individuals. 32 of those 80 people were called cooperators. So these were hedge fund analysts like myself who helped the FBI uh, build these cases. I always say you don't volunteer to cooperate with the FBI. Uh, you do have to be charged with securities fraud. Of course, I was. I was a junior analyst in my 20s working uh, for a small hedge fund in New York and received material non-public information about four stocks over uh, the first seven months of 2007, uh, placed very small trades in those stocks in my company's portfolio, so they kind of wouldn't be flagged small trades. Uh, my personal disgorgement on these trades was $46,000. Uh, I totally rationalized my conduct and my decision-making, thinking everybody else is, quote, doing it. You know, that's one of the classic rationalizations. I'll just do it a little bit, not try to make millions like these other guys who I knew were engaging this behavior. Um, fast forward to the summer of 2008, uh, a really warm uh, Tuesday morning, July 8th. I'm dropping off my dry cleaning at 55th and 8th. Um, step on the sidewalk, and there's two FBI agents right behind me. They knew my name. Um, when we sat down at the Wendy's there at 55th and 8th, 
um, I'm always giving them some bad press with, with this story, but good press. I sat down with the FDA, just at that Wendy's, and they said, look, Tom, you know, we know all this about you, and then we know these personal information. We know that you were just down seeing your baby nephew in Atlanta last weekend. We're trying to build some bigger cases. We think you, Tom, might be a person of interest in these cases. And <clears throat> started, you know, telling all my, my spins to the FBI. Yes, I made those four trades and gave them all the information. Never thought once about deflecting or obstructing. I told them everything I had done uh, right then and there. Um, they thought I could help them. I called them the next day and said, what does it mean to help you? They said, what you're going to do for the government, Tom, is wear a body wire. And so what I had to do was run around and meet people of interest to the FBI, not people I really knew that well. I knew of sort of by their reputation, maybe 20 years older than me, uh, but knew them well enough where I could get them in conversations about maybe trades they had made in the past or insider connections they might have at companies giving them information. Um, got people in a lot of conversations over two years working covertly as TIPRX. Uh, once the charging documents came out, um, I was identified as TIPRX. My case was still sealed. Um, helped the FBI build 20 daily cases. I didn't even talk to an attorney for the first year of my cooperation, just taking orders from the FBI. By this time, I finally hired an attorney. He said, Tom, you're supposed to hire me the first day the FBI approaches you. And I said, plastically, no. My first time doing this, but you know, there's no excuses. Just taking orders. Um, October 2009, the first arrest happened in the industry. That's when the name Tipperex came out. January 2010, my name was unsealed. Thomas Harden is Tipperex. Um, I wasn't sentenced until February 2015. So if anybody has been through the system or are going in, probably knows or will know that it can take years to finally get to your sentencing. Um, the judge looked at my case. She said I helped build 20 new 80 cases for the FBI. And looking at the amount of time I waited to be served or to be sentenced, gave me a time served sentence, so I wasn't incarcerated. Um, fast forwarding to the summer of 2016, having resolved my case, I got a call from the FBI on my cell phone. Um, and I thought, oh my God, what do these guys want now? I mean, I couldn't trade, obviously couldn't work in the industry, kept having all my checking accounts closed because I went to every AML list. And the securities fraud program manager at the time said, Tom, I was basically one of the youngest guys they charged. And my disgorgement was one of the smallest. Like, what's the why behind ever doing it? Why would you do it? I would love for you, Tom, to come talk to our rookie agents because we're building some new white-collar cases that summer in the industry a few years ago. I figured I had nothing to lose. Went and spoke to the FBI about where I was in my career, why I did it, what I was thinking at the time, how I rationalized it. And a couple of FBI agents gave me the idea to go out and share the story in the industry, kind of a cautionary story. And to be honest, up to that point, I had tried to do a lot of things sort of entrepreneurially we can talk about later. I never once thought about talking about it because it was the worst thing I ever did in my life. Who would ever want to talk about it? The FBI thought the way I presented the story would be really engaging for people as sort of a something they'll never forget. Went out, uh, built a cold email list of, of compliance officers and general counsels in my old industry. I uh, must have cold emailed hundreds and hundreds of people. Got two responses in 2016. One guy thought that was a, a um, phishing attack. Tipperex didn't sound real, so I said, that's another type of compliance training. That's not, not what I do. One guy brought me in to talk to his traders, and it just started to become a referral business for the last couple of years. I do compliance training, just telling the story, hey, you know, men and women, I sat in your seat as a young professional, sort of type A personality in my late 20s, Warden school, had everything in front of me, made these choices, and it spread out the last couple of years of really going around the world. Um, no speaking agency, no bureaus, that type of thing, just a word of mouth type of business. 
Um, so it's an interesting position to be in today because I have to relive these moments over and over pretty much every week for the last, for the last couple of years. So, um, but it's something we can talk about, of course. Um, it's going to feel like a calling to it. You know, talking to people about my experience is somewhat therapeutic for me. I've been busy with that. Um, obviously, the last couple of months of COVID, that slowed down a bit. And I've pivoted a bit to virtual and kind of trying to figure out uh, what might happen to the live speaking of an industry. And so it's certainly changed. We'll probably you know, be in this situation for a while. But that's that's the, the short of the story. And um, we have to, to sort of go whatever direction we, we should go. Uh, thanks, Tom. I know I know a lot about reliving the uh, the the worst thing you've ever done. Um, yeah. I probably have a lot of worst things I've ever done, but um, but the big thing, the thing that wound me up in in prison was uh, SBA loan fraud. Yeah, and I've mentioned that over the last eighteen years or so, but there was no way to give context to it because. The world just wasn't there. I, I accepted responsibility for my behavior, and I still do. But, but uh, not until right now, in the last three months or so, would anybody really understand that the government is giving away a lot of money, making it very easy, and for someone who uh, was desperate, or in my case, also desperate and uh, under the influence of drugs, um, uh, it was. I, I wanted that money more than anything, and I would have said anything. And I did. And, and so I was uh, prosecuted for that fraud. But right now we're in a world where I think there's going to be potentially tens of thousands of fraud prosecutions over the next five years. Oh, it's coming. And we've already seen, as you know, the first, the first couple of prosecutions around SBA loans with, um, you know, the government program the last couple of months. And it's, it's interesting. I know you wrote a great column and I shared that with a few of my friends who are small business owners applying for PPP. And, you know, hey, they want to talk to me because they kind of know I've been. Not through what you were through, but through my own experience. Sure. Mm-hmm. I fill all these forms out. My business is loss making, but I'm thinking about, you know, putting these people on payroll to say I have this many employees and not this many contractors. And I have to sort of stop them in their tracks because you can catch them rationalizing. I'm sure you've talked to friends too, small business owners and getting the free handout the last few months saying, look, you've got to be truthful. <laughs> Just saying here, you can't, it's not where you want to stretch the truth. They don't, they don't, they're going to get the little guy as they always do. Yeah, well, what I, I tell people is don't try to solve a temporary problem with a permanent solution yeah. that that could wind you up in trouble. Yeah. You know, you know he- healthy permanent uh, solutions are probably a good thing. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, you know, wh- wh- where, where I'd like to start um, is kind of in the moment that you know that you're going to go over the line. Yeah. So uh, this is something everybody asks me. Like, what's the basic character of people who commit white collar crimes? And is and and was it little things that added up to it, or was it really was it really a crime of opportunity? Um. So you must have known that you were heading into doing something wrong. So what? What was the tipping point? What what allowed you to do that? Yeah, so um, I received uh, my first tip uh, in March of 2007 where another investor called me who I knew in the industry mm-hmm. and said, look, you know, these other big ways in the industry are engaging in this. I just got a piece of information that a company named Kronos, a tech stock, is going to be acquired this 
week, you know, next week, this date, this price by this private equity firm, almost as crystal clear as if anybody knows the movie Wall Street, sort of the blue horseshoe moment, you know, on the phone literally doesn't, usually doesn't fall in your lap that way. It's usually a much more nuanced than that type of yeah. thing. So she's calling me with like, here it is right in your lap for you. And I thought about it for a minute. Um, didn't make any trades that day, uh, but went home and thought about it. Um, and thought, you know, these other guys, not to name names, but were making millions doing this. I was aware of their behavior. I'd see people posting at conferences that were a few years older than me, you know, much more wealthier into their careers, trading on this information in, in large size. Um, and so when I finally went to finally fell into my lap, that tipping point was actually kind of foolish. Um, a three on my part thinking I'm going to go to the conference next week and talk to these guys who are three, five, seven years older than me in their careers who were in that group that I wasn't part of. And now I'm part of the group. I'm going to stick my chest out as a young professional saying, now I'm in your group, guys. And when I placed the trade on Kronos and the next conference was the next week, I remember going and walking to those groups who I wasn't a part of and saying, hey, I know about, you know, or I knew about Kronos when it actually happened, that the acquisition happened. And they said, Tom, you know, this is our world. This is more of an ethnic type of information sharing. You're not, you're not in our tribe type of thing. And I said, guys, I know about the next one too. And they said, you know, Tom, come be a part of our, our group. Mm. I, I always wanted to please people. Um, I always wanted to be like by people to some degree. And I was mm. always concerned about how I looked. Uh, two other people early in my career, their perceptions of me, which was all very positive um, up to this point in my career. And I wanted to kind of ingratiate myself to these individuals. Who I, I don't know if I looked up to them, but I knew they were up to this in some way. And uh, when I finally sort of that fell into my lap, um, now I was part of the group. So sort of wanting to be part of the group, that type of dynamic, um, I think, but a big part of it. Um, it clearly wasn't the money, as I mentioned. It was four trades and forty-six thousand dollars. So it wasn't, wasn't, uh, you know, sort of fu type of money type of thing. Just um, you know, being part of the group, sticking my chest out, young man was, you know, that type of thing. When were you married at the time? I was, yeah. So it happened in two thousand seven. I was, I was married in two thousand five. So not, not too long. Uh, not even two years before it happened. Yeah. Uh, and so. I never talked to my wife about it until the FBI approached me in 2008. Had I checked with my spouse, who was highly ethical, um, you know, very good, uh, you know, Catholic woman, um, you know, very spiritual, always does the right thing. Kind of my um, sort of my my person I look up to in terms of uh, you know any type of decision. She would have certainly checked me in that situation. But I, I didn't talk to her. Um, didn't didn't talk to anybody. I made a decision in isolation, honestly didn't consult any mentors about, hey, this is going on in my industry. I'm thinking about placing a small trade. Made a decision and not didn't talk to anybody. But you know now that's crazy, right? I mean, that's, <laughs> right? I, they, yeah. I, I did the same thing. But, okay, did you really? Okay. Oh, well, yeah. I you certainly wasn't, I wasn't talking yeah. to my wife about, yeah, sure. about, you know, I, I wanted my wife to be proud of me. Right. Right? right, and and I registered proud as making more money. I didn't, not not anything that would be wholesome. Certainly, right, right, right. No, I only shared the good stories. You know, we were building our business legitimately, uh, investing well, and so I knew that I would probably slap around. You know, if I came home, and so I think I chose you know, not to have that conversation. But to be honest, I placed the trade, and I and I hate to say it didn't really weigh on me. 
I wasn't really losing sleep over it um, at all. I just kind of thought like, this is a dropping a quarter in the Grand Canyon. If these, these other guys are doing it, how would yeah. I ever be caught? Because I'm trading so small. And with insider trading, it's a, it's a weird crime because, um, you know, there's academic white papers written about who's the victim. And yeah. professors can go on a long, deep dive. And that's not my, you know, my victims are, are numerous. I mean, my business partner, my family, we could talk about, but, um, you can kind of say, I'm not really hurting anybody. I'm not, I'm not creating a Ponzi scheme where I'm taking, taking $46,000 of your money and going to do something with it. Yeah. I'm just buying a stock with everybody else. It's very easy to convince myself that there are no victims, you know, at, at that time. Yeah, you know, but it, it seems to be also at the time, the, 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 the term insider trading wasn't, in the news, it wasn't a dinner table conversation. Now, uh, if you hear insider trading and the, the alarms go off, and uh, um, even non-industry people know about it because it's been in the news. So, yeah, yeah. so were did you have to go through uh, compliance training? Did you have to go through psychological testing, psychiatric testing? What yeah. I mean, you don't you don't just walk into a trading desk. They actually they actually right. check you out. Right, right. So you have to be, um, you know, a good stock taker. So over the course of my career, I legitimately, um, was looked at as a good analyst, very thoughtful, very diligent, always crossing, crossing my T's and dotting my I's and really doing a lot of deep work, uh, knowing a lot about companies and their customers, suppliers and all that type of stuff. Um, insider trading, it, it wasn't something like I needed to do this to further my career. I didn't feel like, oh, the one thing missing of being in sort of this network of people insider trading. I didn't mm -hmm. feel like I did at all. Mm -hmm. um, so if I never met this one investor who took me on four trades, maybe my life would have had a different, um, you know, turn. Who knows? We can't go back, of course, uh, after these situations. But uh, I did have um, a personality test. Uh, I did take a personality test before my last employer, multi hours. I don't remember if it was Myers-Briggs or, or something else. And so I was really vetted out, I think, very well. And so companies, when I talk to them today, if they're in surveillance or financial crime, you know, Tom, how can we stop hiring guys like Tom Harden? You know, how can we not hire you before you walk through the door and commit the crime? Yeah. And at least in my situation, I mean, I don't think there's anything, I mean, obviously I was vetted and passed the psychiatric test. I don't think there was anything in my background other than wanting to please people and be liked by people and being caught up in this sort of social dynamic. I don't know how that would have been vetted out beforehand, to be honest. Um, but that makes people kind of um, feel a little bit because they say, well, that could be anybody. Well, that's part of the story. Well, I've, I've had um, social workers, psychologists tell me that codependence has killed a lot more people than drug addiction. So yep. the, the people pleasing is a big thing. And, okay. and um, uh, what, one of the things that people tell me um, often is that they're doing the same behavior, but the rules have changed yeah. and, and they're trying to keep up with the rule changed, even though there's the, 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 or, or the culture of the organization might have changed, but they're still doing the same thing. Now I, I was, uh, um, I was fortunate enough to sit in on one of your, uh, one of your talks, uh, last week, actually, um, with, the uh, a big, um, I don't know what it was, private equity fund or something. Fair. Uh, with, their, with their banking client. Yeah, yeah, yeah banking client. And um, so th that kind of happened to you too. I mean, you went into this job with a certain um, with a, uh, with a certain belief 
as to what yeah. their what their their long term plan was, and, and that kind of changed, didn't it? Yeah, that's a great point. Where the goalposts uh, moved. Um, so we were looking uh, at starting our business, investing with a three to five year horizon. We focused on technology, which I just loved. I wasn't an engineer; I was Wharton School undergrad, finance major. But what I loved about technology, where you could bet on new trends, but you could bet on Google, and then you could bet against uh, the yellow pages. So at some point, we knew the yellow pages weren't going to be around anymore. Who knows when that would happen? You could be long Google, you could be short the yellow pages, you could be long Apple when Steve Jobs pulled out the iPhone and go short on Nokia or short on BlackBerry. If you saw that early, so I love those themes. However, those would take sometimes five years or longer to kind of, sure, you know, be, be realized in the market. So I love longer term situations. My partner did too. However, as a small hedge fund in a very competitive industry, after the first few months of our first few months of trading, we lost money um, two of the first three months. And really, who cares? I mean, if we have the right investors, we told them we're investing for five years. It really shouldn't matter on a month-to-month basis, but at the time, we felt, my partner felt that we were, we had to make money. You know, those first few months kind of stand out, um, set ourselves apart from all these other small people who were starting firms. And we had this conversation where he said, Tom, I know we're saying five years. I know we're talking about these themes of Google and Yellow Pages and all that, but really, we have to make money every month as a small fund, and we're not going to be around at the end of the year. We're not going to be able to grow. Uh, we won't be able to get this business going. We'll have to go, you know, work for somebody again, which we have. We, we didn't want to do that. We had this two-man shop. And when the goals went from five years to monthly, um, that means sort of anything goes. And that's what was intimated in that conversation. And so going forward from there, if, you know, this is happening next week at this price, this date, and all that falls into my lap, that conversation from a few months ago, along with the other behavior I saw in the industry, made it easy to kind of get myself to place that trade because now we were focused on making a little bit of money every month. So these four trades gave us 1% more per month over seven months. That was actually meaningful at the end of the year um, because we were so more focused on the short term than we thought we would be when we started the business. So this idea that I even see in 2020 short termism when I talk to companies, they often talk to me about that today in the industry, not with insider trading, but anything where goals have become so short term that the opportunity for bad things to happen can increase. Well, do you think that you were misled as to the capitalization of the company or who its investors were going to be? Or, or um, you, you obviously took the job. Uh, maybe you were a partner, but uh, I take it you were a junior partner. Yeah. And. So, so you you took the position under a certain uh, set of of beliefs about right. the stability of the uh, of the company, right? So, is it that that wasn't true? I, I think it was true in the beginning, but um, uh, you know, we were both in a it was just a high stress situation. Our working dynamic um, became a little bit different, where it was much more antagonistic. We were friends before we started the business, um, so sometimes they say. Uh, partnerships are the worst type of ship. I've heard that probably yeah. heard that before. Yeah. We're, we're friends and so we're partners and then no longer friends. So there was a lot of antagonistic, um, you know, shouting matches, that type of thing in the office. But we never had a, be- a relationship like that before. Uh, we were yeah. partners. And so when he turned to me and said, we got to make money every month, I was already sort of pissed off. And um, if you, if I was, I said last week to these compliance officers, if you would, they had been able to read my emails uh, 10 years ago as they do today, 
they could have vetted that out. This guy, Tom, he's really pissed off with his, his partner. We need to have a conversation with him. And as we know, it's sometimes that disgruntled employee who says, what the hell? This is happening next week at this price. I'll, I'll take a shot. Because I'm kind of already checked out yeah. of the arrangement I thought I had, you know, when we started. So that's played another part. Yeah, but it also feels like it's part of a systemic problem, or at least people have identified the difference between um, between a company that um, is trying to deliver value to its shareholders as opposed to its stakeholders. So, yeah. so people are, are, are aware now that that um, trying to make your numbers every quarter has issues that could. Awesome. That could uh, um, translate to um, dishonesty or um, or cutting corners. I mean, anything to make the numbers. Right. Right. No, I mean, it's um, at that time, you know, it was really about shareholder primacy. You know, now we're talking today, you know, stakeholder primacy. But I think again, some of these themes come and go. Um, ESG, yeah. ESG is a big theme now. You see all kind of conferences about that. But I kind of wonder what's the staying power. Um, how do we really get away from sort of shareholder primacy? I think it's great. Um, it's great discussions. I've been on panels um, on, on these types of stakeholder yeah. issues. But really, what is there are things really going to change from the short term? As in, and I'm kind of just in my experience, maybe just having worked uh, for about 10 years in the industry before all this happened. Um, you know, I hope things change um, in more of a stakeholder uh, direction, but uh, it would need to be seen, I guess, you know. All right. So now the FBI's tapped you on your shoulder. Yeah. And um, everyone in our support group yeah. has been through some iteration of that right. and um, pulled into an alleyway or whatever. Um, it, it, it pretty much is that ominous. And um, what happens, uh, you have the conversation, do you go home and tell your wife that the FBI, right. what happened? It was a Tuesday morning, and just uh, the group is great because the first time I told the story, the group, everybody nodded their head. Usually most crowds haven't had that experience. I did have a situation in Europe. I was speaking at a conference. One of the AV guys in the back of the room doing the cameras came up afterwards. He's like, uh, he was from Zimbabwe and talked about carrying blood diamonds through the airport. Yeah. He, he told me he was, I was the only guy that had done something with the money, and um, like, wow. <laughs> but yeah, so talking... Talking to um, the group Monday night was great because people are nodding their heads. They all have their own stories. Yeah. And so, you know, it was a Tuesday morning. Uh, as I, as I kind of joke in my talk, I was preparing for a phone call from the regulator. And so, it, you know, like Mike Tyson says, everybody has a plan to get punched in the mouth. Um, so they, they surprised me on the street. They know about you know, my nephew, the scare tactics. There was two um, agents, one male playing sort of bad cop scaring me and one woman bringing me back in. So they know exactly my psychological profile, probably been following me for weeks. And the FBI you know, said, we want you to help us with these cases. Um, and then at the end, of, of course, Star Wars, it's the worst day of my life, as it is for a lot of the guys in the group. The female put her hand on my hand. And she said, Tom, the FBI is here for you when you're ready to turn your life around. So, <laughs> I didn't even think twice about talking to an attorney. Um, the FBI said they'd let me know when I could talk to an attorney or they could give me guidance. Anytime I talked to a group of attorneys, they said, how did you not know? Have you watched Law and Order? I'm like, no, I just, I just felt like my best course of action was to talk, to take orders from them. And I could only tell my wife to answer your question. I could tell nobody else. And so I waited a few nights. Um, actually, that day, um, that was in the morning at lunch. I went to St. Patrick's. I had gone through RCIA. 
and hadn't uh, gone through a confession since RCIA in 2004. So, got in line uh, at the cathedral there. And so I sat down. I don't know who it was. Um, went through my whole story. And the guy was probably thinking, why did he have to get me? <laughs> or maybe he was talking to a lot of guys who have been approached by the FBI that we, we don't know. And he said, Tom, it sounds like 99% of your life you've done the right thing if you're telling the truth. But 1% of your life you really screwed up. You can't let that 1% of your life define what your, those dark thoughts you're thinking, you know, right now have that define you the rest of your life. You have to start making good decisions today. If the FBI gave you this opportunity, maybe there'll be something good for you. Start making wise choices today. I walked out, uh, called the FBI and basically said, I'll help you out. I didn't tell my wife until on Friday morning. I was having panic attacks, yeah. um, bad sweats at night. Um, just waking up, which was totally out of character for me. I usually like to keep it light at home, kind of, um, you know, the comedian or whatever, but it was really having uh, panic attacks and just sort of that waking up, looking in the mirror, going to the bathroom, laying back down, trying to dry off the bed where she wouldn't wake up, towels and all that. Yeah. So sweaty. And then Friday after work, we always had a cocktail, um, you know, young couple in Manhattan, you know, which 10 cuisines did we walk through the night, basically, went Ethiopia and, you know, that type of sort of great thing about living in Manhattan as a young couple, you know, how was your week? And I said, well, let, let me go first. <laughs> You know, and she was working at Lehman during the crisis, so she had her own story. But, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, let me, uh, that's, you know, let me go first. And so I said, you know, you want to sit down to hear this? And so she knew it was serious then. And I said, look, you know, the FBI approached me today. I had traded on inside information on four stocks last year. They're giving me this opportunity to help them in some of these bigger cases. And it was not what she was expecting. Yeah. And she basically said that, like, oh, my God, that's not what I was expecting. And she said, you didn't do anything to hurt me. And, and then she thought, holy crap, you know, this is crazy. Like, but that was her first moment. Like, well, you didn't do anything to hurt me, which very lucky. God, feel that right there. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was the first moment where it wasn't going to be easy, but I knew we might be able to work through it, uh, which I feel very lucky there. I don't know what the stat is, but I saw one stat maybe that only happens 15% of the time where especially the hedge fund guy is telling the wife, I'm no longer on this career trajectory. I'm now yeah. the FBI creator. And so usually it's there at the door because they were in the marriage for the other reasons and she yeah. wasn't. Um, we got married young. And so that was powerful, that that moment where she said he didn't do anything to hurt. Although she'll be collateral damage because we're married. And, you know, we know that affects the spouses but the way she took it that way i don't know um you know she probably has her own talk in her i don't think she would ever you know live her side of how she processed this all yeah which is unbelievable and um and it wasn't the easiest to live with even after all this being you know wearing a body wire a very stressful time financial crisis she was working at women so uh, but we always kept communicating about what i was doing um you know where i was going that type of thing with this what might happen by the time I hired an attorney, what he was saying, so I was kept her in the loop, and uh, I was just but, very lucky. But but she never said to you, uh, "Are you hiring a lawyer, or or, or am I going to meet your lawyer?" Or she never nothing, talked about. I mean, the, nothing the, like that. Yeah, you have two young professionals in Manhattan yeah, yeah. at a hedge fund and at Lehman Brothers, yeah, yeah. and and neither of you thought it would be a good idea to hire a lawyer. I had to talk to an attorney. Just just take orders from the FBI. And hope it all works out. Well, I'm, I'm telling you that if anyone listening out there ever wants to take confession with me as an ordained minister, yeah. the, the, I'm, 
the, the advice I'm going to give you is go to a lawyer. <laughs> that's that's, yeah, that's, that's in my talk. That's in my talk today. I tell the hedge funds. Well, I guess the hedge funds can't call their general counsel to the general counsel protects yeah, the yeah, company. Yeah. But, uh, and I know these white collar defense attorneys have these apps now where you can just sort of go on your phone there and I say, you know, other than those four trades that wasn't living a wayward life, I didn't say, hold on, agents, let me call my defense attorney. It just yeah. wasn't. And I know, it's hard. Yeah, and the agents were so well trained. They're like, Tom, you just work with us. It's going to work out. So I'm like, all right, whatever you guys say. I was so delusional. I thought at one point they were going to hire me like Frank Abingdale to be a professional cooperator or something like that. Was, that, that was in my mind. I just seen the, the movie or something like, I'll be like having that, like, no, no, like, yeah, it doesn't really work out that way. Maybe they're going to drop the charges, you know, if I do a good yeah. job, hey, that's not happening. You know, the, the, the part that resonates with me, and um, I think this is true of an overwhelming majority of the people that we work with or that are on the support group, is that um, there's already been a breach of trust in the marriage. Yeah. And, and that's mostly because the guy, um, I'm going to just... Um, call it a guy because it's mostly men who uh who, who get arrested for these things um has already started to put his career ahead of the of the of the marriage ahead of the partnership it's not really talking about uh the things that are going on and this distance being created between the husband and the wife or the spouses and um and he and the husband feels like i felt that um that um, my worth was in my ability to provide. Yeah. And the more detached I got and more disassociated from the family, um, that only increased more. And so what happens is that I find that there's a tipping point that I and, um, and most guys um, get to where they, they really want to go into the bedroom and, and tell their wives, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm about to do something or I'm being asked to do something or this situation is presenting itself and it, it's, it, it might not be good for us. And, and maybe the right thing to do is to, um, is to just recognize that this is the place to stop, pare down, simplify, sell the house, sell the cars, do whatever we have to do. This, right. The way we're moving now is is not going to be good for us. Maybe we talk about it, and the reason why the guys don't—that's what they report to me—is that they're afraid their wives are going to leave them because they've been spent spent so many years um, having moved to this material life. And the right. thing, and the thing to me that is really the most heartbreaking is that when we interview the wives after. They say almost to a one, they would have liked nothing better than to have their husband back, who they had originally married. Yeah, and 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 to be been brought into that relationship, and of course they would not have left their husband. They would have loved to have gotten rid of all the stuff. They just right. wanted their husband back. So, was there any of that? Did any of that come into it? It wasn't. Um, I wasn't. You know, we were. Kind of living, uh, you know, a studio apartment. Uh, it wasn't really. Um, neither of us are big into material possessions. Um, not, not even to this day. I mean, just mm -hmm. sort of late twenties. So I didn't have a lot of resources to, to live a big life anyway. Always working at small hedge funds. Hadn't really had a, mm -hmm. a big year yet. So there wasn't much about big house, big car, that type of thing. Trying to build up this material wealth. But um, I guess one of your points is I think the way she looked at it was 
she knew who she married. There was this major breach of trust when I said, you know, this, I did these trades, the FBI approached me, but I did tell her that week and I still don't really understand. And we don't, you know, how she was able to say, you know, well, you didn't hurt me, you know, like, I guess she knew uh, who I was as a person, maybe even though this is a crazy life event that was self-inflected by me on us. Um, but um, I, to this day, it's just um, very, very lucky that um, she, she took it that way. Um, and so there wasn't anything um, outside, you know, just sort of like living this life beyond our means or that type of thing where we, we had to slow down. It was just my decision yeah. and really all on me. And thank God she was able to take it that way so I could talk to her. She was really my psychiatrist. Uh, you know, I didn't get any professional help, no therapy or anything, you know, wearing these body wires and being in these weird situations. Just the FBI agents who were helpful or as helpful as they could be in her um, and talking to, to the priest at our church. So that was that was helpful too. It's one of those three, three, three circles. Uh, w- one of the things you talked about in in your uh, when you described your story was that it took eight years to get the sentencing. Yeah. Um, I don't think that people recognize that um, when you get involved in the criminal justice system, life becomes a marathon. It's not a right. it's not a sprint. So right. we're, we're looking at a decade or more before you can get your life back at all to try to straighten things out. So in a way, the sentencing is almost secondary because you have the yeah. whole run up. Then maybe yeah. you have time in prison. Maybe you don't. And then afterwards there's the, there's the decompress or the time that it takes to, to develop some normality. And for some reason, some people never, never become normal again. They never get their lives back. So yeah. w- what are you doing during this decade? I mean, this is, this is yeah. Uh, it's a crazy amount of time. It was um yeah. So it was it was about six years, two thousand nine, two thousand fifteen. But from the trade, two thousand seven, two thousand fifteen, eight years. So like a long amount of time to be kind of waiting. Uh, we had this holding date after my 09 sentencing, which was like six months out. Oh, you'll be sentenced in two thousand ten. And as you know, that just that just kept getting pushed out. My attorney would call and say, "Oh, it's it's been sort of pushed forward on the calendar for for months and months and years and years at that point." And as you said, you can't keep going with your life. Um, you know, I'd apply for jobs, but any any friend who was doing me a favor who might hire me to crunch numbers in the back room, that's about all I could look at. So, you know, Tom, why would they ever hire me? I don't think I'm going to prison, but if I am, or just the optics of Tom Harden and the article is now working for Joe Schmo's company. He doesn't want his, his name in the paper, so he's not going to take the risk of bringing me in. So I understood that. Mm. Um, so I really focused on at some point, and I'm not sure how this all happened, I um, I focused on kind of things I could control. I couldn't control the employment situation. I was really worried about the month, the, you know, how we're going to make money. I was just sort of focused on that. Like, uh, I'm going to be able to work for a long time, and I was, and the funds are dwindling, and, um, you know, we had, we had just bought a house, and we were starting a family. So I knew I could only focus on what I could control, um, and so I just started focusing on my health. Um, I, I don't... I forgot, I read so many self-help books, I can't, you know, um, think about one that comes to mind, but somebody talked about sort of owning the morning, like sort of getting your morning routine. Yeah. You know, everybody talks about morning routines today, it's kind of a cliche thing, but at the time, it was like, at least I could set the alarm, uh, you know, make the bed, go out and run, and there was some structure to the day, and I could just check that off, so it's kind of having these small, small things I could write about or talk about at the end of the day while I got my run in, 
I made the bed. I, I sent some emails out. I think it was very important for people in these situations to just focus on the small things first. Don't worry about, you know, getting the big things done. That'll come down the line, but focusing on day to day and having some structure. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, just talking about what I accomplished today. I sent out my resume a few places, had a nice conversation with somebody, um, you know, ran this marathon, really focused on, on my health, like what I could control. And I also listened, I remember this TED talk from Brene Brown, um, about shame versus, um, shame versus guilt. And yeah. I know you talked about that, you learned about that what was it, therapy. Yeah. Um, we, I was experiencing them both at the same time, but I realized, um, after listening to her talk and reading one of her books, that there was a difference between shame and guilt. And I hadn't, I'm not a psychologist, I didn't know that there was a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was trying to figure out that, you know, lean into the guilt that was healthy, talking to people, talking to friends, talking yeah. to family understanding being empathetic and trying to minimize the shame I was feeling, the self-flagellation. I don't think I was ever suicidal, but I had some pretty dark nights and thoughts about the future. And I was extrapolating this experience out the rest of my life. You know, I'm 30 years old. It's going to dominate me the rest of my life. And really self-flagellation, I'm a, I'm a horrible person. But being able to sort of focus on the small wins in my day made me kind of not be as shameful and focus more on the guilt. And I think we talk about that for a second. I know you talk about that a lot. It's just I think that's helpful for people because I would sometimes think they're the same thing. Yeah, um, I'm going to be uh, sober 18 years in a couple of weeks, wow. and and the the, the process is, is very similar. You know, com- uh, the uh, completing completable tasks is uh, is psychologically healthy, and yeah. um, and taking off small bits, but. In your situation, um, life is moving forward. You're you're planning children uh, yeah. into this situation. I mean, you had kids into the situation. So, yeah. what yeah. kind of conversations were you having with your wife about those yeah. type of responsibilities? Yeah, I mean, there was an unknown on the income front. Um, being a convicted felon, um, we were pretty much planning to start the family around the time we did before the FBI approached me. So our plan was to like continue with that plan, even though this is probably going to alter our, the trajectory of our life and what yeah, we sure. do and the uncertainty and was I maybe going away for a little bit, depending on the judge I got or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so um, we stuck to the plan of, of starting the family about when we were going to, and at least she was working so I could be the stay at home dad. Um, so we had two girls, two years apart and, I go to play groups and I always wanted to deflect the conversation about, you know, a lot of us do that. Tom, what did you do before? Like, I'm, I'm just a stay at home dad now or a consultant. I always said, I'm a consultant. <laughs> Don't Google me. <laughs> and change the conversation, you know, something else. And it was great. Um, also looking at what helped me was think about what are the positives from this going on? And so as the girls got older, you know, that was such a great experience to be a stay-at-home father for them, you know, yeah. for a father, that relationship, as you know, with daughters, to have to be around and have that relationship. So it also helped me to try to focus on as much of a positive I could because my thoughts, I guess, were only my thoughts, and it really only mattered the actions I took. Like, my thoughts I couldn't control. I mean, yes, we can, but you get 50,000 thoughts a day, and it's what you act on kind of defines, you know, what you're going to do next. And you also can't control what other people think about you. So as they started going to school, um, in elementary school, I know some other parents at some point had Googled me or that type of thing and, you know, were whispering. And um, I'd start actually just talking. At one point, I remember I was at a cookout in our town one day and somebody was asking me about what I used to do. 
And I just said, you know what, I'm going to tell the story. And so um, the interesting thing about being a pariah is like a great sort of party party. Oh yeah, so you're definitely the most interesting, most interesting person at the party. That's for sure. With our new group of friends, not the old friends, you know, uh, the parents of our kids, new friends group, as so many people get in their thirties, and say, you know, turn the music off. This guy's telling the story. <laughs> and so that's when I kind of got comfortable speaking about it too. And you could hear a pen drop for an hour. It's this guy's, you know, thirtieth birthday party. Or something. Like, oh, this is the, the free entertainment or whatever. And I just, you know, just telling the story and people were really moved by it. And that kind of got me thinking about, is there a bigger sort of opportunity for this? And I didn't really think about that for a few years, but it helped me to start talking about it and seeing people's reactions where they weren't judging me for what I did because they got to know me as a stay-at-home dad. So that helped to have this new world in the suburbs that was separate from my old world of New York City hedge funds, that type of thing. So we're moving ourselves from that world yeah. to this new world of stay-at-home parents. You know, um, you just you just reminded me of something. Not that long ago, um, I have four grandchildren, mm-hmm. but uh, I have a seven-year-old granddaughter, and uh, she was in my car. So this is obviously pre-COVID, and um, she asked me. She said, uh, uh, "Grandpa, have you ever heard this song, Skater Boy?" Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, "Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a song by Avril Lavigne, right? Right, right." And but as I'm thinking about it as she said it i'm feeling like a dagger in my heart you know and and i can't figure it out you know and it's kind of it's a it's a fun song it's a fun song for a seven-year-old that's for sure right but i'm feeling this and so when i got home i looked at um spotify or itunes i can't remember to see when the song was and the song was right during the time after I had, um, I knew that my business was going to, was going to fall, but just before my suicide attempt. And, and I was listening to that song with my daughter and, and we, and I would be kind of curled up on the sofa with my daughter and we would watch movies together. But I was unable to be in the present. My mind was just racing but but here's my granddaughter now pulling me back to the same thing with with her mom, and I'm wow. telling you it was a freak out for me. Like yeah. this the stuff we got, you know, you never know when it's going to kind of come up and claw you back. Yeah, this stuff, is, this stuff is this stuff is deep. Yeah, no, it it is. I mean, it's um, I don't think about it. It's weird because I always tell people I don't really think about it every day now because as the years go by, it gets more in our past, but the same time i am out there talking about it pretty much every every week so it's a balance of you know some of my friends say um you'll never put it behind you unless you stop talking about it stop doing these talks but every time you know we even had great q a on that webinar last week where people were really willing to ask any questions they wanted to and it went on well beyond the hour time slot we had yeah uh, being able to engage with people and yes i'm happy i can make a living doing it but more importantly having conversations with people. I think vulnerability is something I never leaned into. I never wanted to ever yeah. be vulnerable because I thought that wasn't macho or that wasn't being a man or that type of thing. And being able to talk to people um, before COVID, like some of these talks, people would email me to get coffee afterwards. So I get coffee in the city and they tell me what they were going through and not what, what I was going through, but going through their own thing. Just that vulnerability really pulls people in and helps them Sort of, sort of be at ease and talk about, you know, you see it more than I do talking to people every day. Um, 
about their situation. Yeah, when we had, yeah, when we had the um, the the white collar support group as our first podcast. Yeah, and so it, I couldn't believe that sixteen people were willing to come on the podcast and and identify themselves and and share, um, because it wasn't that long ago that anybody would do it. That it, right. so we 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 as a we've built the community of of trust and uh, the safe place, um, and the stories are incredible. Uh, if, if anyone's listening to this, I, I strongly encourage you to, to to listen to that. But it's not for everybody, and it's not for everybody. And um, afterwards, um, uh, af- after we uh, we we signed off and the ca- and the camera wasn't or uh, wasn't rolling anymore. Uh, you know, people were crying. You know, it just brought up things that um, I know is healthy. You know, I've been doing this a long time, so I know it's healthy to 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 uh, um, for it to come out and for us to engage with one another in in this in this um, help in this healing way. Yeah. But if it's your first time. It's like, can't believe, like, oh my God. And I didn't think I would ever talk about this. I didn't think that, you know, this is a, this is this deep, not secret inside me. Yeah. I thought I'd, I thought I'd never talked about it before I started talking about it. I mean, I just thought, why would I want to, as the years got, went by, I think time made it easier to just sort of getting through each year and, you know, going on. But then again, um, it's really, it's really helped. Um, it's almost like it's, um, it helps me to talk about it and sort of my own therapy talking to strangers. As I go yeah. to my talk on the street, it's always a group of strangers and hey, here's the worst thing I ever did, but it's just set the stage. Like this is what I'm going to talk about. So in some ways for me, it might be a little even selfish that it helps me every time, you know, to talk to people, to talk to groups, to talk about issues in the industry or what I went through or what they're seeing or about anything, um, rather than have it bundled up and have it. And, you know, I remember talking to my attorney, you know, years ago about, are there any people who got to the other side of my situation that have been clients of this before? And could he, could he direct me to them? And he didn't know of any group at the time, you know, uh, eight, nine years ago. And so it's been so helpful, um, you know, to have this group, to have people yeah. in their stories and, 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 you know, talking about these very, having these very deep conversations about what we were all yeah. going through and going to go through. Yeah. I, I met my wife in recovery. In Greenwich, so we're we're oh, living wow. in Greenwich, and I, and yeah. I met Lynn, I met Lynn in Greenwich, and okay. we and we became friends first, and we were just kind of buddies in the rooms of recovery, um, but we were starting to get connected, and and I had this 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 doubt. She knew already. I'd been talking about it in the rooms of recovery. I've been talking about my issues, so it wasn't a surprise to her. She knew what was going on, but. I thought, you know, is can I dare put my problems on her? Can I it'd be like taking her hostage? Yeah. Like, yeah. and 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 I'm rebounding from a from a marriage where my wife kicked me out, and she was rebounding. So, literally, in order to get it out, I would start going to meetings that were forty, fifty miles away, where I didn't know anybody. I would just look them up, so right. that I could be around strangers. And get yeah. input from them, and I can't even tell you that what a, what a warm reception you get from going into a place and being able to be that vulnerable. They would take me out to breakfast. They would t- 
talk to me about their what happened in their lives and their situations. I mean, the power of identification and of coming out of isolation into community is just huge. And yet, you know, as white collar people, um, it's non-geographic. We're spread out all over the country, in some cases all over the world. And um, living in isolation. Oh, my God, what am, what am I going to do? No, yeah. and, your, and your lawyer won't even let you to talk. Let you talk to anybody. Right. I mean, no, you know, the company, you know, there's no past clients to talk to that type of thing. And um, I was giving a talk at a hedge fund last year. One of the young traders came up afterwards and he said, um, his dad uh, had a white collar issue and had gone to prison and never talked about it with them. Never wanted to talk about it. Never addressed it. And it was kind of a rift in their relationship to this day. And he was 30 years old, saying, "Look, you know, thank you so much for." sharing your story, I kind of see how it all happened, but thank you for being vulnerable because he was looking at his own life and his relationship with his dad who never talked about it at that time, you know, several years ago. I think it's really important that not everybody, as you said, is comfortable to the degree that we're comfortable telling our story, but I think it's got power and it's just great to have conversations with people and be able to open that up by, by the vulnerability. So, um, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to turn into interviewer again here for a minute. So, um, what what are what are because we're running out of time? What okay. what what are the what are the uh, what are the takeaways here? I mean, uh, I mean, for I, I know you give a lot of talks, yeah. yeah. So, so I know that they you, you chop them up into takeaways, and but um, hopefully, what we've done here is we, we you know we've we've kind of touched the personal side. Um, yeah, and, in my in my corporate talks to talk about what we talked about before, isolated decision making, uh, being able to, you know, being persuaded and being wanting to be liked by people and being brought into behavior that maybe uh, might have might have negative um, ramifications. But really I think for this talk it's telling people that they're nobody can define themselves by the worst thing that they've ever done. Um, and I think the first couple of years I really defined myself by my actions and I struggle with that today because what I do sort of make a living is talking about it. But I don't think it defines me anymore. So I think these situations need to define us. Um, they can destroy us, which it does a lot of people, or we can develop from it through the, um, develop into something different, something in the future. Um, don't let this idea of kind of permanence weigh on people that this is going to affect me the rest of my life in such a negative way as it does today when the FBI first approached me or that type of thing. But thinking about, you know, define, destroy, or develop into something else. And, um, you know, that's what I'd like to leave with people. Just don't, don't define yourself by the worst thing you've ever done because you're not that, you know. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that we are our own worst enemies. You yeah. know, there's no question that the limitations of my own recovery, my own reentry, were mostly self-imposed. Yeah. I, I, I created my own prison of self and my own torture it took a lot of years to work myself through it and i can i can i can just attest to, uh, how how much it affects everybody but to um to decide that you're going to liberate yourself is is a huge step forward right. a huge step forward yeah so, we can't control our thoughts i mean we get fifty thousand a day it's just the ones you can act on and the ones you can you know, not act on. And um, I think that's important for people to, uh, to think about that. You, what you what you choose to do uh, going forward and define you, you know, for the rest of the life that we have. We can't change the past. We can make every decision today is how we're going to do it before. So. so Tom, we'll have some information um, about 
um, you know, your bio and have information about how to reach you in the show notes. But some people just be listening to this. So wh- why don't you give some contact information and uh, so that we can, uh, so people know how to get in touch with you. Yeah, please feel free to email me a call. Um, tipperx.com is my website. My corporate talks are on there, but also my email is uh, tom uh, at tipperx.com. Um, or you can use me at tom.harden at gmail, my personal email. Uh, my phone number is on there on my website. So feel free to reach out to anybody who would like to really discuss anything. I mean, uh, have some great conversations with people the last couple of years and, and hope to continue to do that. Well, Tom, thank you for uh, being with us and thank you for your vulnerability and your willingness to go into places that I know you don't usually go in in your corporate talks. Yeah, and, um, yeah, and um, so uh, I, I, I definitely want to pick this up on our, uh, on our other podcast, Criminal Justice Insider. Um, yeah. it, maybe in the fall we'll have you on there too and we can, uh, we can kind of go further into this because I think it's fascinating that uh, how far you've come in your life. Um, and, yeah, I'd love um, to do it. That's great. Okay, blessings to you, my friend, and uh, and I'll see you next time. Take care. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on White Collar Week, sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries. You can learn more about us on our website, prisonist.org. That's prisonist, like feminist. And please remember to rate, review, and share this podcast so that families suffering in silence can find us if they need us. See you next time.